After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So reads God's word. Thank you, Rachel. Please do keep your Bibles open there at Revelation chapter 4. We'll be spending our time there this morning. And uh, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. It's my first Sunday on staff. So if you're new here, me too. Hope to meet you. I think Steve and I are going to be on the EasyJet desk at the back of the church meeting new people at the end and selling bargain tickets to Sweden. (laughs) The island of Mauritius sits on an ocean shelf raised above the seabed. And there's one particular coast off Mauritius where there's something incredible. There's a gradual slope away under the sea off the beach. And then all of a sudden, the seabed drops away uh, into an abyss below, an underwater cliff that is two and a half miles deep. Can you imagine swimming over something like that, all of a sudden. Now, there are shades of blue that are still visible, and there's, there's sand and silt that's moving, so it has the appearance of an underground waterfall. Beautiful and terrifying and deep. And I would really love to see that. Now, that sudden plunge into the deep is just like what's happening here in Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1, have a look uh, with me there. He, he says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So here we're going to get a glimpse into the heavenly realm. Now, it's a vision. This is not a newspaper article written in advance, and it's not a videotape. John isn't whipping out his phone 
and kind of going, hey, look at this. I'm here with the heavenly creatures. Woo! You know, look at that one. It's got eyes all around it. No, in the Bible, visions are truth that appeals to the imagination. Very vivid, sometimes strange. In this case, electrifying. A professor of New Testament who I studied under, Sean McDonough, said this, that the mode of communication in Revelation and in the prophets is called apocalyptic. It's a revealing and unveiling. And it's the best way to speak about heavenly and future realities. To talk about these things well requires the kind of fuzziness and weirdness that we have here. And what we need to realize today, friends, is that we really need this vision. This is actually the most important thing that we could be doing today. We're not merely gathering here at the King Center because we have a few friends and we quite like the Bible and we enjoy having a cup of coffee afterwards and we just do this every Sunday out of habit. We actually need a better vision for our lives. We need this truth if we're going to live well. We need it to get into our bones because our culture is constantly giving us other messages and we're breathing those fumes in all week long. And the original readers of this letter, this prophecy, this vision, would people just like us. If you've been around for the last couple of months, you will have heard Pastor Matt preaching through, very helpfully, the seven messages to the seven churches. Now, why seven? You know, if you've been listening, that the numbers in Revelation are symbolic numbers. They're not just about calculus. They're about, they represent something. And seven is the number of completeness. So there's seven churches because this is the complete picture of the church. And what that means is that the full range of what's happening in churches in Revelation is happening in church all around the world in every generation, including in our church. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the representatives of each of the seven churches here listening. Some who are faithful and hardworking and whose doctrine is just spot on, but they've forsaken their first love. They need to find Jesus again. Some who are actually flirting with the world and its culture, and that may well be expressed in sexual immorality. You need to see the holiness of God, friends. Some who are really suffering, poor, Struggling, being slandered because of Jesus. You need to know his love for you. Some were kind of neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. Jesus says, you know, you're like a cup of tea at a church fate. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. <laughs> Beware. We need this vision. Now, the main reason we need it is because we live in a world of change. A world of turbulence, a fragile world. Rachel's already prayed about the COP26 summit. The world's leaders are gathered in Glasgow to try and make some resolutions about climate change. You know, over the last 200 years, the human race has caused more damage to the environment than in the entire of previous human history. We're jeopardizing the future of the planet. Think about earthquakes. Fires, floods. Just a few years ago, remember, we were horrified by the news reports of a tsunami. Imagine a Sri Lankan fisherman getting his boat ready in the morning and getting the nets ready, and then all of a sudden it was all wiped away. And of course, there's COVID too. If ever there was a wake-up call to humanity to say, you are not in control, it's COVID. A virus from a bat 
that brought down the world. Hands up if you're fed up of preachers talking about COVID. Thank you. Two people are honest. The rest of you are lying. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But you get the picture, don't you? A world of change, a world of chance, a world that can shake beneath your feet. Oh, well, you say it's all right for us. We live in Surrey. Surrey! You think your world is safe and secure? Come on. All the things we hold on to in a world like this can be taken away in an instant. You know that. Where are you tempted to put your trust? Trust in other people? Trust in your children that they'll do well in the future? You know you have zero control over your children the older they get. You can't control whether they're going to become a Christian. No matter what you do. Trust in your professional achievements, your career. You, maybe you invested so much in it. How significant is it really? I've talked to uh, a man in the last couple of years who, who finished a 40-year career where he worked six days a week and at the end expected that he would be called back to do consultancy. He never got a call. How depressing. We put our trust in our bank balance or our house. It's easy to do that around here. Houses are so expensive. But will money really make you secure? You know, money can't protect you from any of the things in life that really shake you. Cancer, betrayal, heartbreak, bereavement. Money doesn't affect that. All of these things we put our trust in. Where can we put our trust? Some of you are thinking, well, I trust Jesus. Yeah, I bet you do, and I'm glad you do. But you know what? There's trusting Jesus, and then there's really, really trusting him. The way that God deepens our trust in him, actually, is to send a tsunami into our lives and shake us to the core. And that shaking is God's way of renewing us of bringing us back to him, of purifying our motives and our love. And I think that shaking is sometimes his only way. And you know, we're very good at kidding ourselves, aren't we? If you're a Christian here, you know, you, the way you can discover if you're functionally trusting in something other than Jesus is that when it's shaken, you fall apart. I wonder how, it's, how it is for you right now, friends. Where can we put our trust? Revelation 4 and 5 gives us the answer. It shows us what we can hold on to in a world that is falling apart and perhaps better than anywhere else in the Bible. Revelation 4 and 5 reveal the character of God to us, his plans, his purposes, what he is like, his plans for his creation and for you and me. And so Revelation 4 and 5 are a pair, the, the, the core, the engine of the book that we're looking at this week and next week, God willing. And this week, just chapter 4, you'll have to come back next week for the full picture. But this week, chapter 4, and I have just one point, which is this. God is the sovereign, holy creator. You got it? God is the sovereign, holy creator. And some of you are saying, I bet that's really three points hidden in one. And you're right. So the first thing to say is God is sovereign. Here we are back in the text. He looks and there's a door standing open in heaven and this voice, the voice of the Lord speaking like a trumpet. says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The first thing that he sees, the central thing, 
is that God is on the throne. God is on the throne. That is the absolute central message of the book of Revelation. God is in control. He is sovereign. That means he rules all things. Whatever it looks like on earth and whatever it looks like in our lives, and you know your feelings are such an unreliable guide to anything, aren't they? God is in control. We used to sing a song here many years ago. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns in heaven above. In wisdom and power and love, our God is an awesome God. He's sitting on the throne. He's not sleeping. He's not running around panicking. He's not absent and golfing. He reigns supreme at every moment. God is actively sustaining and governing his creation, the cosmos, and the world that he has made for us to live in. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing happens that is beyond his capacity to deal with. Nothing happens without his permission. He works out everything in accordance with his purposes. And his purposes, we know from the New Testament, are for his people always good. And that means, and this is where it gets quite interesting, that the tragedy, as well as the joy, the suffering, as well as the absurdity of our lives, is under his rule too. God is in control. He's working his purposes out from day to day. Now, if God is this king, this sovereign enthroned, what kind of king is he? Revelation 4 gives us some answers using vivid pictures and symbolism. Have a look at verse 3. He is beautiful. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, precious stones, beautiful stones. The presence of God here is radiant. It's kind of luminous. The posh word is numinous. You know, we crave beauty, don't we? We're captivated by beauty. Here is the source of all beauty. The living God. Shining like jasper and rubies. Skip on to verse 6. We see that there's something that in front of the throne that's like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. What is this sea of glass, clear as crystal? Scholars think it's most likely a picture of God's heaven above all the world, but able to look down clearly and see everything that's going on from above. God is above. He's reigning, overlooking the whole of creation. And what we learn about God here is that he's positive toward his creation. Look at verse 3 again. Um, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This is really important because rainbows don't show up very often in the Bible. And here's a rainbow. And this is a deliberate reminder to us of the time when a rainbow came and it was really, really important. Do you remember when it was? Anyone? Noah and the catastrophic deluge, the flood, that wiped out almost the whole of humanity at that time. And only Noah and his family were saved by uh, floating in a, a, a wooden box called an ark. And God brought them through the floodwaters and set them down on dry ground. There was a kind of new creation. And God said, see the rainbow. It's a picture of a bow and arrow. Set down now. The bow is set down. The bow now is pointing only one way upward into God's own heart. 
And God promised and pledged to his creation that he would never destroy it by a flood again. So in spite of all human wretchedness and filth and wickedness and pride, God will bless humanity, all of us. He will care for the created order that he's made and make it a place of nurture and goodness. You know, the creation is amazing. We were very fortunate uh, in October half term to get away to Spain, southeast Spain, near a place called Alicante. It's a, a state called Murcia. And it's the kind of agricultural part of Spain. It's like, I guess it's like Kent. And they have lots of uh, the farms and, and uh, crops and things are grown in this Murcia. And on Monday morning, every week in the town, they have a market where all these market farmers and others show up and they set them out on stalls. It takes over half the town. And the fruit that you can see there is unbelievable. Just row upon row of, of the brightest colors imaginable. All kinds of oranges, lemons, limes, little satsumas, mangoes. That you, you, I've never tasted a mango like it. so vivid. Cherries, the biggest cherries I've ever seen. There's this fruit that looks like a kind of a pink rose, and inside it is a key, like a kiwi fruit. It's white, little dots. It's called a dragon fruit. They had them. Never seen them before. All sorts of fruit. You know, that's just, that's just fruit. <laughs> that's just fruit in one little part of Europe. What a world God has made for us to live in, a place of nurture for us. And so the fact that the rainbow here is encircling the throne, it's around God's throne, is a subtle sign. God is positively disposed. He is committed to his creation. And this is also a sovereign king who, who loves to be connected with his creation. Look who's around the throne. He's surrounded by people, 24 elders and creatures, four living creatures. He's all around. And, and this God even shares his kingship. Notice that these elders are sitting on little thrones around the throne. God shares his rule with us as human beings. And these these um, elders, they're, they're dressed in white like a priest. They have crowns of gold on their head like kings. They are priests, kings, worshipping God and in his presence. And that's a picture of God's people, priests, kings. Exodus 19, verse 6, 1 Peter, if you want to look at it all through the Bible, there's a thread that God's people are called to be priests, coming to him, representing the world to him, and kings, exercising rule where you are called to exercise rule. Even if that means changing nappies, and bringing up kids, that's exercising rule under God. Yeah? doesn't have to be a big career job. Now, here's this God. These representatives of God's people, these creatures all around him, all in God's presence. And yet, and yet, along with these comforting signs and the rainbow, there is something about this that vision that should make us tremble. Look with me at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now, whenever these things show up, lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, whenever they show up in Revelation and in the rest of the Bible, they are to do with God coming to earth in judgment. The presence of God, if he were to show up, would be utterly terrifying. Anybody in the Bible who encounters God falls on their face and wants him to go away. Moses asked if he could see God. God said, I, you cannot see my face. It would be too much for you. Hide in a cleft in the rock and you will see the back part of my glory. 
Even that was enough to make Moses' face shine. And notice that these lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, signs of God coming in judgment, are actually coming from the throne. They're part of who God is. They emanate from him. See, this God cannot be anything other than a thundering, shining, brilliant, glorious being. And sin is burned up in his presence. So if you're not fireproof, don't go near him. And the reason for this is, secondly, God is fundamentally holy. He's, sovereign. He's the sovereign, holy creator. Look at verse 6 to 8 again. I, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter here. Here we are, chapter 4. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. And... The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Weird. Each of these four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, and here it is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is holy. And it is so important for us to grasp this vision of God's holiness because our culture tells us otherwise. And if you're not a, a, a practicing Christian or you're unsure of your faith commitments here today, let me just reflect for a moment on, on what our culture tends to think about God. Maybe you can resonate with it. Our culture thinks of God as a bank manager or a granddad. Jonathan Aitken, former cabinet minister who was disgraced in prison and then became a Christian, said this, I rather treated God as though he were my bank manager. But I thought I was in charge of the account. So I could get away with what I wanted, and that is not a Christian life, but a self-centered and proud life. You see, if you treat God like a bank manager, you don't really want a personal relationship with him. No offense if you're a bank manager. You know, your bank manager, you just do enough to stay in credit and pop in to see him or her from time to time or check in online. Now, other people don't think of God in, in those distant terms. They like God a little bit closer, and they prefer the idea of a heavenly granddad. C.S. Lewis, professor of literature at Cambridge Uni, said this, What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything that we happen to like, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a heaven father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who would, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Now, Revelation has more references to the Old Testament than any other book in the New, uh, mostly in the form of echoes, you can hear them if you're listening, or allusions, hints, but sometimes direct quotes too. And here we have a direct quotation, and it is really, really important. Uh, John here, the writer, is reminded of one of the most important moments in the whole Bible when Isaiah the prophet went to the temple. And it is so important that we need to just step into Isaiah for a moment and read it so we can understand John. So would you come with me to Isaiah 6? If you've got this church Bible, it's page 691. We'll just read a few verses from Isaiah 6. Or for my colleague Steve, Isaiah 
6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. Sound familiar? And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, here is Isaiah. And he's a believer. He's a proper believer. He believes the Bible. But, you know, it wasn't really real. And then one day he went to the temple to worship. And like most people who go to church, the last person he expected to meet was God. But God showed up and rocked his world. Jerusalem Temple had a very high ceiling. It was a beautiful building. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Isaiah goes in, he sees this high ceiling, and there's all the the beauty inside the temple, and the top of it is is clad in gold, and it's shining, and the front's white, and it's all there. But you know, one thing Isaiah sees that day is that he sees the Lord seated on a throne, And the train of his robe fills the temple. Just get an image of how big this is. The train is just the hem. Just the bottom hem of God's robe fills the whole temple. So how big is this vision? And it's shaking. And he sees these heavenly creatures, seraphim. It's a Hebrew word that means burning ones. They're on fire and flying around. And these creatures, heavenly creatures, Creatures are in the presence of God all day long, and they can only say one thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the scholars tell us that in the Hebrew language, when they want to emphasize something, they double it. So if they want to say something is really gold, they say gold, gold. It's the way the Hebrew Bible works. There's only one place in the entire Bible where God, something is described three times in triplicate and it's here holy 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 the most emphatic way of talking about God the essence of who he is is his holiness and Isaiah says I'm undone I'm undone I'm a person a man of unclean lips and the lip reflects the whole life doesn't it Now, this is God's essential characteristic. He is holy. That means two things. One, he is moral. He's absolutely pure, absolutely good, total integrity, truth, justice. He never does anything wrong, no no sin. And holy also, secondly, means distinctive, set apart, special. God is absolutely different from us. He's utterly distinct. He is unique. You know a lot of our thoughts about God tend to start by assuming he's basically like us. We already thought about the bank manager, the grandfather. A lot of people project things from their own father onto God. I once preached this in Manchester, and a young man came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, that's right. I I do tend to project things about God uh, onto God from my father. I I tend to think of God as a short, angry, red-haired Scotsman. In Isaiah 6, there are these 
angelic beings, and all they can think is, they're captivated by the majesty and beauty, and they say, holy, holy, holy. Now back to Revelation 4, where we are actually today, and notice that here it's not seraphim, but living creatures who are saying it. And they say, holy, holy, holy as well, is the Lord Almighty. Who are these peculiar creatures? Verse 7, uh, one looks like a lion, one's like an ox, one's like a man, one's like an eagle. These are the kings of creation. The king of the beasts is a lion. The king of the domestic animals is the ox. The king of the birds is the eagle. The ruler over all God's dominion was humankind. And so this is a clear image that the whole of creation gives glory to God who has made them. Creation gives praise to God, and if we have eyes to see it, we will see it all the time. The whole of creation ceaselessly witnesses to God's power and wisdom and glory. And if you can take out your earbuds and stop and just breathe in and out and look at the night sky, and you can see the stars here. We couldn't see them in Manchester, but you can down here. You can see the wonder of what God has made all the time. Or you see a little bird. We, we, have, we saw a robin on Friday. Birds, even parakeets <laughs> here, giving glory to God. The whole earth is full of his glory. But there is one difference. You might have noticed the observant among you between Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. Because in Isaiah, the seraphim say, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But what do they say in Revelation 4? Did you notice? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Contrast. Who was and is and is to come. I was so happy, by the way, we sang those two songs at the start. I was preparing this morning in my study and I thought, I'm such an idiot. There's two songs I really wish we could sing today. And I never thought about it in time. I never mentioned it to Dave or, or Steve. And then they picked the two songs. Brilliant. And so here's where that comes from. He was and is and is to come. God was. He always was. He's the creator. God is. He's reigning now and he's with us now. But he's still to come. There's something unfinished. That's a tension, isn't it? God is still yet to come. He needs to show up and set the world to rights. Things may be fine in heaven, but on earth they are far from fine, aren't they? You know that. So Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom hasn't fully come on earth yet. That's what we're, Jesus taught us to pray and we're still praying it. So you see there's a now but not yet fully dimension to this text. He's holy, he's the Lord God Almighty, he was, he is, but still to come. We, we long for his appearing when he will return and put things to right. The seven churches that this was written to know it. We know it. The suffering church of Jesus Christ all around the world knows it. Lord, Maranatha, come back. God is sovereign. He's holy. And the third and final thing, more briefly, is that he's the creator. Verses 9 to 11. They sang, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong place again. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him 
who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for, because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. The great vision of heaven climaxes with worship and as the creation gives praise, the four living creatures, the representatives of God's people, those 24 elders, fall down before the throne in wonder and adoration. They're overcome with the sight of God's glory. And the only thing they do with their crowns is cast them down before him. They lay it all down in the presence of the living God and they say, you are worthy. So worthy. Why? Because you created all things. Quite simply, God is sovereign over all things because he created all things. And he is worthy of all glory. What is glory? The basic idea in the Bible is of something weighty, heavy. Things are glorious that are heavy and substantial and lasting. God is weighty. It means he's permanent, he's valuable, he's lasting, he's real. Gold is glorious, paper is useful. Those who see God realize that he is utterly real. He's so real that he makes everything else seem like paper thin. And so whenever the most weighty one, God, shows up, the earth shakes. There's smoke, rumbling. Peals of thunder, Mount Sinai, Isaiah's vision of the temple. The temple's full of smoke. It's not safe to look. And here in heaven, the glory of God. What is this God like? He is a sovereign, majestic king. He is holy, holy, holy. He is glorious. Now listen, what are the implications for us? What does all this mean on Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Friday night? Here's what it means. If you drop an object that is heavier than water into water, there is a splash and the water makes way. If you drop an object that is heavier than ice onto ice, the ice quakes because the object has more glory and weight than the ice. And when the reality of God comes down into our lives, it changes everything around. He rearranges all the furniture because he's more glorious than we are. And we make way, and everything moves around him. And as I said earlier, God might be shaking you up right now in order to renew you. So if God is coming down into your life, you have to make way. Some of you might be doing the Christianity Explored course. What a brilliant course that is. You know, the thing you're going to realize is that if Jesus is who he says he is, then all of you's got to go in. He's worthy of nothing less. Every time God shows up in person in the Bible, the earth quakes, the ground trembles, because he's supremely worthy, the creator. Listen, the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. If it was reduced, if the distance between the earth and the sun was reduced to a piece of paper, that thickness, the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big our galaxy is. But our galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust in the whole universe. 
And the Bible says that God, the sovereign holy creator, holds this universe together by the word of his power. Now, is that the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? When he comes down, he's glorious. Everything makes way. Your habits, your heart, your affections, your wallet, your sexual life, friendships, how you use your time, speech. Everything changes when his glory comes into your life. I said we need this vision, don't we? Our lives are so trivial, absurd. Wow, we need this vision. Where do you, dear friend, need to make way for this glorious one this week? But also, with the challenge, I want to speak to those who have got wounds and struggles and you're hurting. And perhaps this vision of an awesome God is kind of devastating to you. Well, as I said, come back next week. Next, next week, we've got something extra. How does this vision of God help us with our wounds and our anxiety? An old Lutheran hymn written in 1696 gives us part of the answer. And here I finish. One of the verses says this, Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight, and he'll make your wants his care. If we fear this one in the sense of adoring, awe, and reverence, then we won't have to fear anything else because he's bigger than all our problems and all our fears. Shall we come to him in prayer? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you are so great, uh, we tremble even to come into your presence. And yet we thank you that you have been, you've condescended to speak to us such as us, to speak to John and show him this vision and give it to us now in, this, in our own language. And in the stillness and in a moment in song and as we gather around the table, would you come and do a great work in our hearts. So love divine, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll stand when the musicians start and we'll sing together.